following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So I've been giving a series of talks about integrating practice into daily life. It's so uh, such an important part of any path that doesn't get isolated in some corner like we're really wonderful, wise, loving people when we're at church or when we're at common ground. But we want to practice that is really about our whole life and uh, helps us when we're really upset and helps us when we're really relaxed and supports us when we're old or when we're sick and when we're healthy. So I've been talking about integrating practice into daily life in a number of different ways. And recently I've been talking about uh, using love or using compassion as a way of practice. And maybe in a in a in the ultimate sense, it's not it's not really correct to say that uh, compassion or love is something we do even. It's more like so much of spiritual spiritual path. It's more about getting out of the way. But that also is a practice, like how to get out of the way so that the heart can be loving or so that the heart can be clear, mindful of what's going on. And a lot of it, too, is just about stripping away the idealism, like what our ideas are about being a loving human being or our ideas are about being a wise human being. Some of you know that uh, Rini Howard, who uh, just began as Common Ground's board chair, has a, a serious cancer, just found out uh, about maybe two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. And on her Caring Bridge webpage, you know, there's a website that people who are sick can get a webpage where they can have people go on and send their good wishes, and they can also update all their friends what's going on. So I checked today, or yesterday, I forget, and she had put up a poem by Havis, a well-known poet from long ago, Persian poet. It's called Perfect Gift. Go naked before God. Stop looking in the mirror and messing with your hair. Don't worry what everyone else is wearing or whether you look fat. Go naked to the beloved in full daylight. Make a love offering of your entire roly-poly self. It's the only thing you have to give, so give it joyfully. Hold nothing back. Place the whole absurd and precious package in the palm of the divine, where love will receive it with infinite tenderness and delight Sweetheart, don't you know, you are the perfect gift. And this is, uh, I, I thought this is a nice way to begin the talk tonight because probably the biggest obstacle to, to practicing with love or with compassion is somehow we don't feel qualified. <laughs> I'm too angry to be loving or I'm too distracted or... I don't even know what love means and all these sorts of feelings that we have. 
or the opposite, you know, where we think we know what compassion is or we know what love is and it's really just a concept, it's not the actual experience. And so the nice thing about this teaching in this poem by Havis, it, it, it tells us both that we do have what we need, it's already here, and it, and it gives us a little pointing out that the way to love, the way to be compassionate, to be tender, is to really be, to show up in a, in a bare or authentic sense. And this is a little bit what we were doing tonight. If you followed the instructions that I w was giving, it wasn't so different than our normal mindfulness instructions, except that we're trying to notice how simply showing up, being intimate with the body in this very honest, authentic way, like really feeling what it's like to have a body tonight, at this time, this body, the way it is now, it becomes a tender, loving, compassionate experience if we fully show up. It's not like we have to try to be loving toward the body. If we just completely show up, we will be loving. And then actually it's a relatively easy step to start loving the people who are sitting next to you. But we, we really uh, learn so much by understanding our moment-to-moment -moment relationship with the body. It's like the great metaphor for all of our other relationships. <coughs> and the, the, thing, the reason we don't want to do it is we don't have often a very pleasant relationship with our body. So we just as soon avoid knowing how it is. And that's another, you know, that's the other great pointing out in this poem. We think, you know, in order to have a healthy relationship, it needs to be perfect. But the quality of the relationship, like with our body or with another human being, what makes it perfect isn't that it's all, you know, rosy. What makes it perfect is the, um, the honesty, maybe we could say, or the clarity, or the lack of resistance, the lack of spin, or expectations. I mean, we can just think about moments of being authentically connected with ourselves, our body, another human being. And if we reflect on those moments, We'll see that they weren't always beautiful moments, you know, the, the classic hallmark moment. They were often really difficult moments, but they, they were, there's a certain realness or authenticity or things being stripped away that made it so moving or transforming or healing. And this is empowering. When we understand this, it's really empowering because then we realize any moment will do. <coughs> any moment of our life is a good moment to rediscover some way of being real or authentic or open or loving or compassionate or whatever word you want to use. We just have to somehow, we have to be reminded that that's a possibility. And it could even be this moment right now. I mean, we don't have to wait. That's the whole idea. 
And so even as we're sitting here now, we can just work with the, what we were doing earlier, which is, you know, the in-breath is just dropping in more fully. So forget the in-breath part. We can just drop in more fully, whether we're on an in-breath or an out-breath. It's just a trick. So the idea is just to drop in and all with all the sense, senses. So not just dropping in like feeling the body, but dropping in with the visual experience of this room full of people and the smell of being in this room full of people and the sounds of the birds and the sounds of people moving and people breathing and the traffic, people moving and all our thoughts and the mood. So coming into a more authentic relationship with the here and now. And then the second part is just to notice the tenderness of that. Somehow intuitively we understand how fragile it is. Like this moment will never, has never been like this before and will never be like this again. There's something really tender about any moment. Unless we're caught in some idea like, well, it's just this moment. <laughs> it's just common ground. It's just my body, which is basically something in the way of being real and open and authentic. So tonight, you know, just con continuing the conversation about compassion, I thought <clears throat> I might say a few more words about what gets in the way of being compassionate, whether it's our formal compassion practice while we're sitting in a quiet place, or just being loving and compassionate in the world. And of course, this is compassion. This can be compassion practice too, just looking, seeing what's in the way. What is in the way of being loving and compassionate? Like, you know, a few moments ago, I just suggested we practice right now. And maybe you noticed something was in the way, like there was a very distinct, clear feeling that you weren't being loving or compassionate. There was maybe some numbness or some, you know, flatness, you know. Ah. I went to a talk last night by somebody who practices here, uh, who's a doctor. He was speaking to uh, a group of people who are caretakers of people with Alzheimer's. My mom has Alzheimer's, so my dad and I went and uh, Ramesh, this doctor spoke very articulately and lovingly about this whole disease of Alzheimer's. <laughs> now I'm forgetting my point. <laughs> sort of ironic. Maybe I'll come back to that point. <laughs> so anyway, I was, I, yeah, it had something to do with compassion, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So he, one of the things he was talking about in terms of what gets in the way, uh, I'm connecting it, what gets in the way of compassion, that he was talking about this condition of apathy, which I've never heard of. He's a psychiatrist. So I've never heard uh, apathy talked about in a specific, um, as a specific psychological or, or mental illness. And, I mean, we just use it more generically as a, you know, I'm a little apathetic. 
but how with apathy, you know, it uh, there's really no way to treat it. It's like uh, he, he as a medical condition. He says there's no good treatment for apathy. And so, as a as a practitioner, though, there's we have this belief. You can just use it as a belief, kind of a, a hypothesis that there's a way to practice with every state. Because as a mindful a mindfulness practitioner, a compassion practitioner, there's always something to do when the mind is apathetic or numb or flat or whatever however you describe, you know, these afflicted states that we fall into some of the time, or maybe most of the time. And the way to practice is in a sense, we step back and we care about that afflicted state. We care about the apathy. We care about the numbness. We care about the depression. We care about the aversion or the irritation. And you know, there's absolutely nothing ever in the way of doing that. No matter what the afflictive state that we're dealing with, it is always possible to practice with it because as soon as we recognize it, the, the only catalyst, required catalyst, is we have to know this is happening. And if we know this is happening, then we can care about it. And caring about it is an act of generosity. So it's a radically different way of being than being caught in that state of numbness or apathy to caring about it. Because when we're caught in one of those states, it, it, like I talked last week, there's that inner gravitational pull. One way or another, it's like, oh, poor me, or we're blaming. But it's very, you know, it's very much about me. Like, this person is doing it to me. Life is doing this to me. Or I need this. But when we care about it, then there's a, it's a different movement of the heart. It's a different way of relating. It's, it's like the, the flip of it, the opposite of it. So this is the first part in terms of uh, cultivating wisdom and compassion. And remember last week, those of you who are here, I talked about wisdom and compassion are really the same thing, just different ways of talking about the same thing, the heart that's not caught, that's not confused in the moment. That's a wise and loving heart, a wise and compassionate heart. And so the, the first way that we practice in our daily life is we work with this hypothesis that there's always a way to practice. There is no, it's not possible for there to be a moment that we couldn't practice with. Now that doesn't mean we're going to practice in every, in every moment. It just means that we won't be fooled by the thought, oh, I can't practice in this moment. There is a way to practice in this moment. There is always a way to be more free, less reactive, less weighed down in any moment. And in terms of how I'm talking right now, the, the particular teachings now, which is about working with metta or compassion, the word in Pali for compassion is karuna. So sometimes you might see that as in books that you read. So metta is the quality of friendliness and then when that basic quality of the heart that connects when it connects with suffering 
then karuna or compassion arises. So the cause for compassion to arise is that open loving heart meeting suffering, our own suffering or the suffering of somebody else. And then compassion naturally, unavoidably arises. And we, uh, the intention of course is to go through our lives with this idea, this hypothesis, that there's always a way to practice. Like again, even in this moment. So if your mind is resistant or tight or your body is unpleasant in this moment, then just without knowing how to practice, just entertain the idea that there is a way to be skillful in this moment. There is a way to relate to the conditions of this moment that lead to happiness or ease. Just like we all know, we're totally convinced that we could relate in a way that would create more disease and more unhappiness. So of course, the, uh, the, the flip is true too. So let me just make a caveat to that first principle that there's always a way to practice. So it may be true that there's always a way to practice, but sometimes suffering arises in our lives and we don't have the skill to practice with the suffering. So as we, as we recognize that there's a lot of difficulty in the moment and we practice opening to it, <coughs> the first moment of, of that wise, compassionate way of relating is going to tell us, this is too much. I can't handle this now. So then we'll skillfully retreat. Because that's sometimes the way to be compassionate is to walk out the door. because Or to do something if we can. Because what we're faced with, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the perspective to just breathe it in and send out, you know, a good wish. We don't. So we, what we breathe in is the fact that we feel overwhelmed, that we're frightened. And then, as we're running out of the room, it's the feeling, I care about myself. I care about this heart. I'm taking care of myself. You know, and we might even hear ourselves saying, you know, I can't be here right now. I have to go. But that could be just the right thing to do sometimes. Even if that person really needs us. Sometimes staying is not the right thing to do. So this is again, you know, just reminding us that to be a loving, compassionate person, that does not, it doesn't arise out of some idea of what that looks like. <clears throat> like we can't have a set plan. This is what Mark looks like when he's being loving and compassionate. And then lay that on our relationships or our situations in our lives. The compassionate response in any moment arises spontaneously when we've, been, when we've let the moment in, when we've allowed the heart to be touched by what's going on. So the only way we're going to know what the compassionate wise responses is by breathing in, by really becoming more sensitive, more intimate, and then something will happen.
I think a couple of weeks ago I mentioned this line from Larry Rosenberg. He's a Vipassana teacher out in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and also teaches at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And he's written a couple of good books, including Breath by Breath. And then he, he wrote a book about reflecting on death, too, which is a traditional Buddhist practice. And he has a line in his that book, Breath by Breath, I think it's called, um, where he says that that there is an end of suffering, but the end of suffering isn't escaping suffering. Or escaping suffering is not the end of suffering. Escaping suffering is itself a form of suffering, needing to escape it. So this is the basic principle. So when we understand that this first principle that uh, everything can be practiced. We can practice with everything. And then we remember that principle that it's not about escaping suffering. It's about transforming our relationship to suffering. And then the next step is always to know where to begin. And so even if we're around people that are really suffering, like if we ended up being on one of the teams in China, you know, pulling people out of the the rub, the fallen buildings or in Myanmar or wherever there's a lot of suffering still even though the crisis is all around us or the suffering is all around us the place to begin is always right here in this body so this is a useful uh, teaching before we go to the person just notice how it is in the body and have a loving, compassionate relationship to the body. Now, it's not like we have to ignore the situation we're in for, you know, 15 minutes. Sorry, just practicing with my body right now. I'll get with you shortly. But the fact is, if we don't connect with the experience of the body, we won't be as effective with what's going on around us. And those of you who are parents, or those of you who are friends, like all of us, then we can practice this. We can practice being really intimate with the body as we're taking care of what's going on around us. Because I notice it all the time, you know, like, uh, you know, I have to, when I'm around my mom, and, you know, she can't, it's, she doesn't have a easy time eating, you know, she can't use silverware really anymore, so she's just eating with her hands, and, you know, it's, it's a mess, and it's like, of course, I want to help my mom, and I do help my mom, but the best way to help my mom is to first be really relaxed, to be really at peace with what's going on with me. So, of course, <clears throat> we need to be at peace with what's going on in the mind, but the best way to do that often is to be at peace with what's going on in the body, because the mind and body reflect each other, as I often say, and I'm sure most of you understand. So whatever anxiety or tension, even if it's quite mild, it will be there alive in the body. And if I just take that moment to, to see how it is in the body, to relate to the experience of the body with compassion, be intimate, breathe it in, and then 
have this loving wish. May this body, may this mind be at ease with the conditions as they actually are now. That's a great way to respond in a more obvious way to the moment, what's going on in the moment. And the nice thing about that simple technique of starting with our relationship with this body before we say something or do something in the world is it also it also brings in some spaciousness because a lot of the times when we see suffering in the world what we're actually responding to isn't the person right in front of us but our story about what's going on you know we have this story that 70,000 people have died in China or you know there's the, my child's you know is going to grow up to be you know a psychopath if I don't correct him you know in this way or you know we, we have this sort of drama going on that may be different than what's really happening with this person in front of us or with this thing we're addressing that's right in front of us so if we take that moment to be in the body, just connecting with that bo- with the body for a moment means we have to drop the drama in that moment. So then after we connect and, and sort of establish a loving relationship with the body, then when we, like a concentric circle, we open to who's in front of us, <clears throat> the situation in front of us, we have, we, we've already dropped the drama, so we're showing up in a more direct, innocent, authentic way. Not with our drama, but with just responding to what we're seeing, what we're smelling, what we're feeling, which is often a good way. And, And, you know, I've found this to be so true that what I say spontaneously in a moment like that is so much more effective than if I had planned it out. Like, what would be a good thing to say to this person in this situation? Because I'm actually responding from intimacy as opposed to the thoughts about the situation, which almost inevitably contain some defense system. Like, our thinking about the situation, like it or not, if we're really honest, is often used to protect ourselves from the situation. So... If we can get beyond that by just first just peacefully coexisting with how the body is, then we might find that our first words or our first response to the person or the situation is very creative and real and useful. Another thing I mentioned the other day that is part of this beginning with the body is the more we do this, the more we realize in a very direct way that we're wounded. As a human being, we're wounded in the sense that we've been hurt, you know, in all kinds of different ways over the years. And not all of our hurts have been healed completely. And this is this is what we find out by returning to the body over and over again is that we're hurt. 
And so, all of a sudden, it's just, it's so much easier to start connecting with others because everybody else is also hurt. We're just a bunch of wounded people, psychologically, emotionally, probably also physically, spiritually, existentially, we're all wounded. And so the more we have that relationship with ourselves, the more we start having that relationship with everybody else. And it just makes us a much more effective, useful, and happy human being living in that way. And this is how uh, sitting practice is so useful because when we when we have a regular sitting practice, we so much of what we're doing formally in our sitting practice is learning to come back to the experience of the body and to have a clear, loving relationship with the present moment experience in the body. So inevitably, at times at least, we will discover the woundedness as kind of pain in the body. The the sort of feeling the unpleasantness at different times, not, not hopefully not continuously, but you know, for most of us it's a regular visit, visitor in meditation practice, the unpleasantness of the body. So just to notice that in a loving way is, uh, uh, is such a useful training for how to be in the world. In the same way that if we continually cultivate on not being in the body because we don't want to feel the unfinished business that's in the body, then that will take that strategy into the world, which is not really wanting to be present with your pain. And I notice this, like when I'm not really grounded in my own experience, then when I'm around somebody else who's in pain, even though it may not look this way, you know, because we're all skillful at imitating compassion, that my ways of being with that person are mostly about fixing and sort of maintaining this facade of being a loving, compassionate person. So I need to act in a way that sort of fits that image. But it's not about actually connecting with this person and responding to their pain. That's not really what's going on. It's about uh, fulfilling an image I have for myself so I feel good. But of course, that doesn't even feel good, really. It just feels safe. You know, like if we're, you know, totally locked in a room, protected, cut off from all things, we might feel safe, but it's not a pleasant existence, <laughs> for long at least. And this is the same thing. So when we learn to be intimate with the body, it's this great metaphor for being intimate with all things, all beings. And to do this work, like to be compassionate and wise in the world, we keep returning to our present moment experience, this body, this mind. And another thing we'll notice, besides that just sort of uneasiness or pain in the body, is we'll notice things like guilt. We'll notice various unpleasant emotions, too. 
But these also will really help us in being more skillful with others. And it's really the place to begin. You know, and people talk about this all the time, like, you know, people who have kids. I've had a couple friends now who had uh, babies, and just uh, hearing them talk about the different feelings that come up, you know, not the kinds of feelings or emotions you'd want your mother to have, but, but it's real. This is what really happens with parents. They really get angry. They really feel put upon by their kids. They really want to get out of there. They want the kid to stop. And so it's really nice to be able to, um, to be authentic with these experiences, to be loving, to be caring. Oh, I care about this anger. I care about this upset. I care about this exhaustion as opposed to having only one strategy, which is denial, or maybe two strategies. One would be denial, and the other would be to hate ourselves for being uh, unskillful, let's say. There's an example, a beautiful story that Jack Kornfield tells in one of his books. Maybe some of you have come across it, but evidently some uh, couple spoke to him about a situation in their past where they, I think, couldn't conceive so that they adopted a child from overseas. And after a few months of having this child, they realized that it was an infant. They realized that the child was deaf and uh, uh, had cerebral palsy. And uh, so they talked about, uh, to Jack, they talked about, like, the emotional reaction and how they had to deal with all the different things, like blaming and feeling um, like life wasn't fair. Like, how could this happen to us? You know, just a loss, it's a huge loss. You have to, we have to really deal with the loss, because we had an idea that we were getting a healthy baby, and now we understand that's not the case. And to to really be there with those emotions, because that's, that's actually what's asking for compassion. Now, if they had immediately you know, thought, no, that's wrong, I need to be with this child, which I'm, I'm sure they took care of the child. But the point is, what was really asking for compassion most directly was their own feelings of loss, and disappointment, anger, blame, whatever. And then probably shortly after that, guilt for having all those feelings. And then they have to be compassionate, patient with all of that. But the story has such a beautiful ending. After, I don't know how long, but it wasn't too long, a year or so, a couple years, they had worked with all of that, had come to a really healthy place with all their own feelings, been able to connect, develop, of course, strong, loving, compassionate feelings toward their child. And they decided to adopt another deaf child so that this uh, first child would have somebody to communicate with. And uh, it's just such a, a beautiful example of that natural responsivity, of, which is to show up with the hurt that's, this, that's closest, basically. That's the hurt that we address first. And we keep addressing it, keep addressing it, keep addressing it. And eventually we're addressing wider and wider circles.
before we open a discussion, I just want to talk a little bit about equanimity. And maybe this could be a, uh, a way into our discussion tonight. In terms of these different qualities of the heart, like loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy, they're all thought of, uh, of as being infused with equanimity. Like we can't be a good friend without being equanimous. We can't be a, a really good caretaker for ourselves or another if we're not equanimous. We can't be around a lot of beauty and joy if we're not equanimous. We'll suffer. So let's just reflect about the relationship between equanimity and love or equanimity and compassion to understand that there really isn't compassion without the equanimity it's really it's the equanimity that allows compassion to get close to suffering without the equanimity I mean equanimity is just the absence of reactivity so in order to get close to joy to get close to suffering, to get close to anything, to be loving or friendly with any experience, we need that equanimity. So this is, uh, this is why it's so important when we have this intention to be compassionate people that we begin where it's easy because equanimity gets strengthened through recognizing it. So if we, um, if we make the mistake of going to what's overwhelming for us, like going to pain that we're not ready to be with, what's going to happen is we're going to start to react because we don't have the space or the perspective to actually be with that pain. And we're going to react and we're going to find a, some way of reacting and then we're going to reinforce that pattern of reacting. So like, it's such a common sense thing. We start where it's easy. We open to the suffering or the difficulty that we are capable of opening to. And what we discover is an equanimity. We are equanimous. We are at ease with that difficulty, our own or the difficulty in some situation or some friend's life. We find that we can be stable, we can be composed, we can be relaxed right in the middle of the mess. And what gets reinforced then is this insight into the into equanimity, that equanimity actually, in a sense, is the background of the heart or mind. It's really already there, but it's not something that we can always recognize. So we have to practice recognizing it. And you know, equanimity, it's like, uh, it's like the stillness in the mind. And so we're not used to noticing that. We're used to noticing the activity. So we, we practice being with pain, our pain or somebody else's pain, and noticing that it's possible to be still, to be at ease, to rest, to be spacious with the difficulty. And this is, a, this is a very potent transforming insight. And the key is to start where it's easy. The ordinary suffering that is all around us, just to begin working with it, or 
are very ordinary disappointments that we have. You know, the half and half has gone sour, and you can't, you can't have your coffee like you like it in the morning. And then just to, to just see how the mind can be really stable with that, not waver in that experience, not blame, not judge, not feel like the world is beating you up in some way. And then all the little ways. And this is how we develop the power of compassion. So maybe I'll leave it here. Um, maybe I'll spend one more week on compassion and then we'll go on to appreciate, appreciative joy as the next way of cultivating the heart. But it'd be nice to hear from people what you're learning, what you have learned in your own life around uh, showing up with compassion starting with your own experience, especially the experience of the body, and how that helps you kind of take this loving, compassionate way of being out into the world. Any questions that you might have? Or what's gotten in the way of being compassionate that you'd like to share with the group? Mona. How many demands? And that kind of zaps my compassion. But I clearly noticed today, and I often do, my intent to arrange my life in a way that allows enough time to not lose that, you know, that feeling of having time to be present. Yeah. And not feeling like pushed over, which I so often do. Yeah, and I, I bet that most of us can relate to that experience. And, and, and one thing we can also do is just notice that feeling of being overwhelmed and then the irritation that comes with that feeling of being overwhelmed, like we can't handle one more thing. And so that means everything is irritating to us in some way or another. And, and then if we really let that suffering in, the compassionate response will be to go take a nap or go lie down or, or step out of our busyness. So that's actually the way, you know, because we all kind of know we need to change our schedules, you know, change our routines. But the question is how to do it. And, and the way to do it might be actually just to feel how much our life isn't working. And, and to really be touched by that may actually be the most efficient way to make different choices in our lives. To see, to feel deeply how our routine isn't working, that it's a cause for suffering. Edwin? Uh, you were talking about uh, circles widening, and uh, also uh, a bit earlier you mentioned uh, the issue of apathy. And uh, personally, right now,
only from a Buddhist perspective, you could say, ah, oh, well, it's all impermanent, that there is no other self-entities on this whole planet. But this integrate right into okay, the rocket, there'll be another reality that emerges. On the other hand, you know, there's kind of almost feel like there's an imperative that is arising to kind of step out from habitual patterns and something different, you know, and, and bringing in all of those aspects of compassion and, and so on. And so like, what can I as an individual do to make those changes? And it's a tricky thing, but in some ways I think that I no longer want to let go of that, go back into Go back into your habitual patterns? Yeah, and the whole barometer for that kind of reflection, you know, when we're when we're reflecting on how to relate to what we're being exposed to, is just the effect on the heart. Are we being more weighed down by our new way of relating, or is the heart feeling more buoyant and free? I think that's that's the way. Because in, I mean, you don't have to believe this, but I can. I'll just put it out there. You know, do the ends justify the means? Is that your approach to life? From my understanding, the, the way the Buddha taught, it's the means and the ends aren't different. So if you're interested in freedom, you, we have to practice freedom. If we're interested in peace, we need to practice peace now. If we're not practicing peace now, we're not going to get peace later. If we're not cultivating a loving way of relating to whatever is being known now, we're not going to. It's not going to arise later. If we're reactive now, we'll be reactive later. So then, that's really our barometer for whether we're being skillful. Like what is being cultivated or triggered right now in the heart is what is being set in motion for the future. Great. You get confused about trying to find the feelings in the body. I, I tend to want to try to localize it. And it's too subtle for me. And so I just kind of lose track of the whole I'm not sure how to go about that process or how to get my mind around that. The feelings in the body? When I'm, when I'm having, yeah, when I'm having a reaction, mm -hmm. something comes down, and the customer gets angry with me. Okay, now I start asking myself, well, I'm having this feeling of um, fear, anger, and then I'm trying to localize it in my body. That's what I try to, and I don't think that works. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, we have to have a real open mind. So when we're upset, the way we use the body doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be in a specific place. Sometimes it will be. You know, we'll notice some heat. You know, we'll be flushed and we'll notice the heat, or we'll feel the, you know, the belly muscles tightening, or the shoulders will be elevated, or the tongue will be pressed against the roof of the mouth, or some kind of classic things like that. Jaw will be tight, but. Ultimately, what we're learning is this kind of more general feeling. And it's like, how do we know when we're suffering? How do we know we're suffering? When we're upset, what is it about the present moment that tells us we're upset? And see, we'd like to know that directly. And so you can ask yourself that. Okay, I'm upset. I know I'm upset. So. What is it about this moment that tells me I'm upset? So you can literally ask yourself that question. How do I know I'm not happy now? 
How do I know I'm upset? And then that, because Greg's absolutely right. We have to re-educate the mind. We're not used to looking directly into the present moment. We're used to using our story to tell us how we're feeling. And and uh, it's not a it's not a very skillful way to figure out what's going on. So we have to ask ourselves, like, how do I know I'm upset? How do I know I'm suffering? How do I know I'm not content and happy? Or maybe I am content and happy. So if I'm content and happy, there should be a sense of resting, because there's no why would I need to go anywhere or do anything? And so any sort of agitation, movement, then we can look there and see, well, what's, what's the cause for that? Like the movement to want to say something to that person. Like, so then we look there, like where is that kind of eruption arising out of? So there's tension, but because we're so pervasively tight, we stop noticing it. And this is just how it is. We're just not connected with the body we stop paying attention because it's so pervasively unpleasant, has been for so long, we just have checked out and we're in our thoughts. But that itself, staying in our thoughts is itself tense. It takes tension to maintain that mental activity. So, and it's, it's sort of ironic, it's both a relief to drop in the body, but it's also unpleasant. But it's a relief because at least we're not using a tense activity to keep ourselves from feeling the body. It's a long process. Bonnie, did you want to say something about that? Um, yeah, I just want to say I could relate to what Greg was saying. I had some experiences today where I had a telephone conversation with a coworker where um, I felt she was insulting or condescending or something. And I physically felt this, like when you said this eruption, just here, and I don't know if that's an emotional feeling or if it's physical, but it felt physical. And so that helped me realize, okay, you're getting pissed off. So what do you want to do about that? It's like, okay, I don't really want to interrupt. So she is, this woman that I'm interacting with, is someone who is very challenged in her job, and it comes out in lots of very side-based ways. I've been practicing empathy so I remember at that moment when I wanted to respond in a way that I wouldn't wouldn't be skillful that yeah you feel sorry for her you have empathy for her and I make her life worse so that helped really dampen that so the training is working or the Buddhist training and I bet before you even did that, Bonnie, when you felt that eruption, just to, in order to be intimate with that eruption, you were probably meeting it with wisdom and compassion. Otherwise, you would have acted it out. You didn't say that to the group, but I'm guessing that in the knowing of that feeling was some wisdom, the wisdom of not taking it personally, which allowed you to be loving or caring about it. And then that allowed you to actually meet her with empathy instead of reactivity, or relate to her with empathy instead of reactivity. Well, luckily I hung up the phone and had a chance to think about all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't instantaneous, but it was good. good yeah.
Thanks for sharing that. Maybe time for one more, Elena? Um, question. I'm um, curious about why it is that we say something like, I care about this pain, I care about this suffering, rather than I care about the being who's experiencing this pain. Or is it the same thing? Uh, it can be the, the language, you should just use what works. The idea is to use the language or the phrase that um, encourages the heart to open to what it doesn't want to open to. So depending on you know what is getting your attention, is it the person or the specific problem? So it doesn't matter. The idea is just to uh, realize that the heart can be intimate with things that it doesn't want to be intimate with, that it doesn't uh, superficially think it should be intimate with, that we can actually be close, that it's okay to be connected to what's unpleasant, to what's difficult, to what's confusing. So it may be the person, it may be their cancer, you see, so it doesn't really matter, it's just, what, what, it's just about what you don't want, go where you don't want to go. Actually, there's only one thing we ever care about, which is our heart. But what our heart is changes. Sometimes our heart is very narrow, and sometimes our heart includes the whole thing, the whole universe. But that's the only thing we ever care about. If you look, if you really look at the experience of love or compassion, we're just caring about this. You know, it's just that this includes sometimes very wide, sometimes very narrow. But this is the heart, the heart of the moment or whatever our but it's always the same thing. It's always this moment is what we're caring about. And it's just about what we're let, what is kind of moving or active in the present moment, what has our attention. Yeah. I think we have to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just appreciate being here together tonight. appreciate all the men and women who have done the practice over the centuries and done their best to cultivate compassion and wisdom, shared what they learned to the next generation, and being grateful for all the people who make the center possible. There are so many people in this room that volunteer on the board or to do the office work or working on the new building all the people who contribute that allows us to have this space and have this center. Just to be grateful to really receive the gift of this center and this program and to be inspired to do the best we can to give back by practicing however we can in our lives, cultivating wisdom and compassion 
taking care of ourselves and taking care of all beings, each of us in our own particular way. So we can have the aspiration that all beings are free from suffering and free from the roots causes of suffering. May we all be at ease. So thanks again for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.